We've just been uh, hearing about God's grace, and we're going to now uh, read about it in God's Word. If you would turn there uh, to Ephesians chapter 2, and verses uh, 1 to 10, where Paul the Apostle uh, tells us what we were as Christians before we were uh, believers, what we once were, and what's happened because of God's amazing grace. So we'll read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace shown to us in Jesus Christ, that we have been raised to life by no merit of our own, but all because of your great mercy. We pray that we would understand this grace more and more as we grow in our understanding and in our relationship with you, and that we would bear fruit in the good works that you have given us to do. We pray, Father, for your grace to be shown this week. Uh, particularly, uh, we pray regarding the two funerals in our church. We thank you that as your people, we can speak of grace even in the saddest of times. And we pray that the families and friends of David Beach and Iris Kirk would experience your grace at this time. For the unbelievers that will be attending the funerals, we pray that you would raise them to newness of life. And for all, we pray that you would provide the comfort that is needed. We pray for Tim as he prepares to preach at the funerals. Would you equip him to speak of your grace powerfully? Many in our church are suffering with grief and with sickness. And we pray that they would all know that your grace is sufficient for them at this time. Uh, we pray this uh, particularly for Pat Salt. And for Jill and Mike Elliott as they go through their cancer treatment. And for others who are unable to meet with us at this time. 
and they feel the loss still of not being able to come to church. We pray that you would meet with them, that they would be reminded of your grace and of the love of your people. And not just know these things by reminder, but be reminded by experience as they experience them day by day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our merciful Savior. Amen. If you would uh, turn in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 20. And this evening we're going to be in uh, chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 to 16. Uh, So let's turn there. And before we look at this passage uh, in detail, uh, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, your word... Uh, is good for us. We love your word. We thank you for your word. Uh, But sometimes your word is hard for us to hear. And sometimes your word uh, is so countercultural and so different to how we think that it is even hard for us as your people uh, to even get our heads around sometimes. And we will perhaps find that in this passage tonight. So we pray that you would help us Uh, to understand this, to have ears that hear it, and to even thank you for the grace that you show to all of us, especially those that we don't think uh, deserve it. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.
there is a, a lie that I think is the, the most told lie uh, in the history of the world. And the lie is this. You will earn God's favor by working really hard. And the lie has a flip side to it. That is, you will not get God's favor if you're really bad. So God will favor you and give you reward in heaven if you're a good person. But if you're a bad person and have done really bad things, well, then you get your just desserts. In the world, we would call that perhaps the, the law of just desserts. You'll get what you deserve. The problem is most of us think we deserve quite a lot. But I'm sure we can all think of people that we think deserve to go to hell. Well, we've been looking at the countercultural kingdom of heaven and how Jesus turns this kind of worldly thinking on its head. We saw that a couple of weeks ago uh, at the beginning of chapter 19 with marriage and singleness. Last week, we saw that it's very countercultural who Jesus welcomes into his kingdom. Uh, the children who at the time were looked at as nothing who couldn't bring anything into God's kingdom, well, they could come in. And the rich, moral, upstanding man who brought loads to the table, he found it hard, and he went away. And at the end of chapter 19, Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And he says this in response to the shock that the disciples have that the, the children who were last in this world were welcomed in first, and the rich man, who seemed to be so deserving, he found it hard and became the last in his kingdom. We must be much more like the children, we're told, really, and unlike the rich man, recognize that we desperately need God to save us from our sins. We can't work our way there. We can't give God anything that would make us deserve it. We just need God's grace, his, his mercy. It turns the world's thinking on its head. And in chapter 20, Jesus goes even further as he, uh, as he unpacks this phrase, the first will be last and the last will be first. And if you notice in verse 16 of chapter 20, he says the phrase again, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So whilst the world thinks we get favor from God that we deserve, Jesus turns this on his head and shows us in his kingdom the scandal of grace. And we're going to see in this passage today that grace is a scandal, a scandal, now, we've been singing, rightly, and we'll see that a bit too, how grace is amazing. This is amazing grace. But what Jesus shows us here is that grace is also really hard. Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, in order to unpack this teaching, he uh, speaks a parable. Now, a parable is a story that Jesus tells that teaches a lesson about the kingdom of God. He teaches us what it's like. So in verse 1, you'll see the first words are, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So we see for, that means unpacking what I've just said, for the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what God's kingdom is like. And we read in this parable a lesson about the undeserved favor that God shows to those who are called into his kingdom. And we're going to see that it's scandalous. So let's read his parable. And as you read it, you should, if you're reading it right, get a sense of, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And if you feel like that, you're starting to get the point of what Jesus is, is showing us. So let me read from verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them 
a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last only worked one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is God's word. What we're going to do is, as we look through this parable is, I'll explain what's going on in the parable... Then we're going to see the main point of the parable, and then we're going to try and apply it to our lives and uh, turn the way of the world's thinking that perhaps is in our mind uh, on its head. And I think as we go through the parable, there are three words that we can hang things on that helps us to see what's happening. And the first word is generosity. So in verse 1, we see this landowner. Uh, He was no doubt uh, a very rich man. Uh, He owned land, and he needed it harvesting. And he needed help because the vineyard uh, was at harvest time, and so he goes to the marketplace, and at the marketplace, he hires laborers. The the marketplace was the equivalent of going to the job center. It's where people went to get hired for day labor. Uh, The working day began at 6 a.m., and it was a 12-hour shift. So he would have gone out before 6 a.m., which, uh, as is described here, is early in the morning, uh, to get the laborers that he needed. And in verse 2, he agrees to pay the laborers uh, one denarius uh, for the day's work. Now, a denarius was uh, a a Roman coin uh, that was a typical daily wage for a worker at the time. It wasn't unusual. It was the daily rate of the average worker. So after agreeing this rate, uh, they knew what they were going to get paid. It was a fair pay because it was a day's average wage. The workers go into the vineyard and they begin their 12-hour shift. And in verse 3, the man goes out again at 9 a.m. Now the, the thing to notice here is that this is already three hours into the working day. And he sees others standing in the marketplace, and we read that they were doing nothing. Now, when we read that, we might think, well, we're being told they're being lazy, but they're not being lazy here. Lazy people would have stayed at home and not even gone to the marketplace. What this means was that they had no employment. Nobody had hired them yet, so they were doing nothing. And this was a serious problem because they went to the marketplace because they needed work. They needed the daily wage, in order to pay food for the family table. And so no work meant that there'd be no food on the table at the end of the day. And so this landowner 
provides them in verses 4 and 5 with work, and he promises to pay them, we read, whatever is right. So they couldn't really, I suppose, expect a whole denarius because they weren't working for the 12-hour shift. They were working three-quarters of it. But they were expecting to be paid what is right. That's what they were promised, a fair wage for the work that you're doing. But the landowner goes out again at noon, so some people are going to work a half day. And then at three in the afternoon, he goes out again, so some people are going to be working a quarter of the day, and he does reread the same thing. So he would have gone to them and said to them, Go, you've still not been hired, go work in my vineyard, I'll pay you whatever is right. Notice how this landowner uh, continues to go out. He continues to provide work for those in the marketplace who were in need. We're not told here if he needs the workers or not, but the likelihood is, from the, the rest of the story, that this man is being generous and compassionate to the needy. Then we come to verse 6, and we read that 5 p.m. came. Uh, this was the final hour of the working day. Now, for those that are interested, we have a phrase in English called the 11th hour, which means the very last minute. It comes from the authorized version uh, of this parable, uh, the 11th hour. It means there was a 12-hour shift. He goes out at the very last moment, the 11th hour, the final, uh, the final time. And at this point in the day, the people that were still in the marketplace would have been those that nobody else wanted to hire. It would be a bit like when we were kids and you were doing a game and you all lined up and you picked the people you wanted. It's like the ones that are left to the end. That's what's going on here. They're left. No one wants them in their team. Perhaps they were older and so wouldn't be wanted for the manual labor. Perhaps they had some weakness of some kind. Uh, Perhaps they had bad reputations, but they have been unemployed all day. When asked about it, they give the reason, no one has hired us. We could read that as, nobody wants us. But although they were unemployed all day, they certainly would have been persistent. In verse 6, we read that they've been standing there all day. So they've been looking for work all day in this marketplace, indicating that they were there from the very beginning of the day, standing around for the best part of 12 hours, trying to find a job to provide for their families. They would no doubt at this point have been discouraged, thinking, we're never going to find work. But here comes the landowner, and at the last hour of the day, he says, go work in my vineyard. It was only an hour. We don't read what they were told about the pay, but they couldn't have expected much at all for just an hour's work. When we come to verse 8, the working day comes to an end. Now, in this culture, you didn't get uh, your pay in your bank at the end of the month or even at the end of the week. You got cash in hand at the end of each day. The foreman would call the workers and he would give them the cash. They would have their denarius at the end of the day. And in fact, the Old Testament law Uh, stated that they were not to hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. They had to give them the money because they needed it. They needed that money for that day. And so the Jewish law even said to workers, pay them the wages on the day they work. And so that is what this landowner is doing. He is paying them uh, their wages at the end of the day. Now, so far, up to this point, there is nothing shocking about this story. Uh, Perhaps the landowner's employment practices you could argue, are eccentric, that he keeps going out and hiring more workers, but nothing overtly strange. But at the end of verse 8, the story begins to take an odd kind of turn. Because you would expect the first into work would be paid first so that they could go home and feed their families because they've been out all day working. But the landowner, notice this in verse 8, tells the foreman, Uh, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So there's a hint here that something odd is going on. And that odd thing is where the shock begins to take place. And it takes place at the beginning of verse 9. This is the first big shock in this story. 
The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Do you see the shock now? They worked for one hour of a 12-hour shift and got a whole day's pay. Now, that was really generous of the landowner, and it was really compassionate, because a twelfth of a day's pay would not have provided what they needed to feed their families. They needed that day's pay. That's why they went out early in the morning and were there all day looking for work. And we can assume, although we're not told, that the other workers hired later in the day also got a day's pay uh, as well. And then we come to verse 10. Now, if the ones who worked from 5 p.m. got a whole day's pay from this generous landowner, the ones who have been working since 6 a.m. must have been dead excited as they're queuing up for their pay. You can imagine that what they're thinking, right? If, they, if they, they've worked one hour and they've got a whole day's pay, we've been here all day. We could get the best part of two weeks' wages from this guy. This is awesome. What a, great, what a great boss. We've landed on our feet. And in verse 10, we read what they were thinking. It says, so when they, those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Now, before looking at the next part, we get that, don't we? That makes sense. You would expect it. I would, right? You've, if they've got one hour of one day's pay, I've worked 12 hours, I'm expecting 12, hour, 12 days pay. Kind of makes sense. Even if I don't get 12 days, I'm expecting more than what I was agreed to receive at the beginning of the day. But here is the next big shock in this story. But each one of them also received a denarius. How would you feel? How would you feel? I mean, some of you know what it's like to work a 12-hour shift. You work the 12-hour shift... Someone comes in for an hour, they get the same as you. You're not supposed to feel okay about it. <laughs> That's the point. You couldn't accuse, though, the landowner of not keeping his word. They agreed to be paid a denarius, and he paid them what he agreed. But despite the landowner giving what was agreed, we see something in the next part of the parable that I think would be how we would feel in their position too, grumbling. In verse 11, we read, when they received it, their denarius, they began to grumble against the landowner. They were annoyed with the landowner personally. They couldn't believe what he had done. And in verse 12, we see their grumble. Those who were hired Last, only worked one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Can you feel their anger? They're furious. Now notice something important here. They were grumbling that the 5 p.m. workers were made equal with them equal with them. The assumption being, we're better than they are. And there are two reasons we're better. We have worked longer, so they've borne the burden of the work. We've been here all day. We've worked longer than you, longer than them. And also, secondly, we have worked harder. We've worked longer, we've worked harder, because we've worked in the heat of the day. They show up at 5 p.m. and it's getting cooler. There's no hard work for an hour in that 5 p.m., and you make them equal to us. It's not fair that you've done that. How dare you make them equal with us? And you would be thinking, at least when I read this, I'll be honest with you, I'm thinking the same thing. They've got a point, right? They have a point. I mean, again, how would you feel if you were them doing 12 hours? And they're getting the same pay as someone that worked one. Well, how does the landowner respond to these grumbles? What we see in his answer is the kingdom reality of grace. Grace means undeserved favor. 
the landowner, this is the, the key, is not giving the workers who worked one hour what they deserve. He is giving them what they don't deserve. And that's grace. Undeserved favor. He's not giving them a denarius because he thinks, well, in one hour you've done an awful lot. He's giving them a denarius because he's showing them grace. And in verse 13, he points out to these workers who are grumbling, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? He's paying them what they agreed. It's not unfair. He's just being generous to those one-hour workers that also needed the same day's pay that they happened to get first. But in, ver- and in verses 14 and 15, he points out that he has the right to be generous with his own money. He's not giving the later workers the same pay because they deserve it. That would be unfair. That would be unfair. But he's giving it to them, and he's not hiding the fact that he's giving it to them because he's being gracious and generous to them. And the landowner points out the problem with the grumblers at the end of verse 15. Their problem was that they were envious of the master's generosity. They felt, they, you haven't been generous to us. They were envious that he was so kind and compassionate to those other workers. And the kingdom of heaven is like this. It works on the basis of grace, not of works. The kingdoms of this world work on the basis of just deserts. It's turned on its head. The kingdom of heaven is based on grace. And so in verse 16, Jesus gives the point of this parable. So the last will be first and the first will be last. And the meaning here is this. There is no positioning in the kingdom of heaven with some being more deserving than others. The pay is the same no matter how much you have done. The first, the last, the last is first. In other words, it's all level. All level. No matter what you've done, it is all level. The first, the last, the last, the first, all level. So what do, what, why, why is Jesus saying this parable? Well, it's not about employment practices. It's not about explaining why we might need trade unions. And it's not even what often people, I think, think about this parable, about how long you've served in the kingdom of God. It's not even about that. This parable has one major point, which is this. We come into God's kingdom by his sovereign grace, not by our own merit. And this is a scandal. We come into God's kingdom by his sovereign grace, not by our own merit, and this is a scandal. Now, there are many places we can go in the Bible to think about God's grace to us, and it makes us want to celebrate. But can I suggest to you that this parable is not one of those? Why? Because the focus on this parable is on the scandal of grace and how there are times when we don't want to celebrate grace. Let me explain. The landowner represents God, and the vineyard represents God's kingdom. And if you are in God's kingdom, you are there because God has come out and he has called you in, just like the landowner comes into the marketplace. And God is generous and God is compassionate. He comes to us And he provides for our need of being in his kingdom in relationship with him. It's interesting to note, by the way, how the people in the marketplace were unemployed. The landowner was not poaching them from other vineyards. He didn't headhunt them because they were great harvesters. They could get so many grapes a minute or anything like that. There was no job interview. They had done nothing that made them deserving. They were hired by his grace, by his his compassion. They didn't deserve to be hired. And that is how it is with salvation. We have have done nothing. That means we deserve God to bring us into his kingdom. Rather, God has come out to us and invited us to work in his kingdom. And we see this in and through Jesus Christ. 
God has come to us in the person of Jesus. He's been generous and compassionate to us, providing for our greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, by dying in our place on the cross. He dies as our substitute. He didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We deserve God's wrath, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. And God's forgiveness is available to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is not about what you do. You cannot earn your way to heaven. It is all by grace. God's generous provision. Now that's wonderful news, isn't it? It is wonderful. And we've sung amazing grace and grace unmeasured. And it's right that we celebrate the amazing and wonderful grace of God that he has shown to us. But I suggest that when we sing those songs, normally we are thinking about God's grace to us or, at a stretch, to those that we love. But we don't often think about God's grace to those that we don't like very much. Or we don't often think about God's grace to those who we really would not want to be in God's kingdom. The challenge of this parable is that grace isn't always seen by us as wonderful. There's nothing shocking about verses 1 to 9, about the generous landowner who's been gracious to his people. The shock comes in verses 10 to 16 when grace is shown to those who the others think don't deserve it. And there are people who we don't like. We have to be honest with ourselves. There are people that we don't like. And there are people that have hurt us terribly and done awful things to us and to our families. Can you say in your heart that you can celebrate if they're in heaven with you? Can you really? Because that's the scandal. There are some people who we look at and think about that are beyond the pale for us. That's the scandal of grace, isn't it? It's not so wonderful then, is it? If we're honest. That's what's going on in this parable. Uh, In this last week, um, Paula and I have read uh, a book called The Creaking on the Stairs. And the subtitle of the book is Finding Faith in God Through Childhood Abuse. And it is a very harrowing read, uh, but also very challenging. And I was reading it uh, at the same time as preparing for this parable. This parable is not in the book, but um, it fits perfectly with what's going on here. Uh, The author of the book uh, is called Mez. And he endures horrific abuse as a child. And unlike many, uh, he never ever questioned why God would send people to hell. In fact, in the book he explains that as a young Christian, he thanked God that his abusers would go there, that there was a place there for them. And there is a chapter in the book called The Glorious Wonderful Reality of Hell. But the next chapter is is one which is called The Terrible Reality of Heaven. And I'm going to read you uh, some of that chapter because it really illustrates this scandal of grace really well. Uh, At this point, his life, uh, Mez's life, had spiraled out of control and he had been in prison numerous times, but he becomes a Christian and he joins a church. And I'm going to read you Uh, what he says. I would show it on the screen, but it's, it's a bit long, so hopefully my reading brings the sense across. See that guy over there? The pastor pointed to a thin looking man in his late 20s, sitting nervously at the back of the hall. He's just got out of prison. Go over and talk to him, Mez. So I wandered over and offered him my hand. Hey, What's happening, I said. He eyed me nervously. 
Nothing much, came the reply. Welcome to the church. Your first time here? Yes, he mumbled, nervously looking at the floor. I heard you just got out. Where were you? He names the prison, but it's not one I know. You're a Christian, I ask? Yeah, he says, a couple of years now. Good for you, mate. How long did you do, I asked. I got six years, came the reply. Yeah, wow, tough one. What for? He suddenly turned pale. What do you mean? I mean, what did you do, what did you do jail for? He knew what I meant. It was standard question between jailbirds. I knew before he even opened his mouth that he was a sex offender. I was just stupid. I regret it now, he said. Was it kids, I asked him. Asking him straight now, all pretense of being nice gone, he didn't answer. He just kept looking at his shoes. It was kids, wasn't it? I hissed at him, worried that people would overhear. Still silence, looking at his shoes. You need to do one, mate, I said. Now, before I do something stupid. He looked up, and by now I was eyeball to eyeball with him. I smiled at a lady in the church passing by with her three children. I better not see your face in here again. Do you understand? Yeah, he whispered, and walked out of the door just as the service was starting. Afterwards, the pastor sought me out and asked me what had happened to the man. He scarpered, pastor, I said, feigning indifference. That's a shame, replied the pastor. He seemed like a nice young man. Well, he wasn't, pastor. He was a sex offender. We are better off without him here, simple as. The pastor stood staring at me for a couple of minutes, picking his words carefully. Look around, Mez. We are all sinners, every single one of us. In God's sight, we are all as terrible as sex offenders. God saves all kinds of people, Mez, even the ones we don't particularly like. I was dumbstruck. No way did God save sex offenders. No way at all. But I was too shocked to say anything. Later that same day, I became enraged by the thought. God saw me like a sex offender. What? That's not right. It couldn't be. The church is for good people, I told myself. Well, if that's true then, why are you in church? Came the instant reply in my mind. I'd been a Christian for two years, and I hadn't ever thought about it. Does God save sex offenders? Does he let them into heaven? No, he couldn't, could he? I came to realize pretty quickly that if there were people in the church that I thought shouldn't be there, then there would be definitely people in heaven that I thought shouldn't be there either. I like the thought of heaven for myself and my loved ones, but for my abusers, my tormentors, no thanks. Many people struggle with the thought of a loving God sending people to hell, yet they, these same people have no problem with pedophiles, rapists, and the like going to hell. That's not a problem. That would be justice. But God doesn't differentiate between sinners. Sin is lawlessness, and we all fall into that category. That's a bitter pill to swallow. Here's an even more bitter one. Some pedophiles and rapists will be in heaven. They will get to enjoy the glories of living with God for eternity. And some of their victims will be worshipping Jesus side by side with them. Even more incredibly, they will be thanking Jesus that they are there with them. I mean, this is just scandalous. There is a verse in a famous hymn that says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. For many years, I refused to sing that verse. I refused to believe that God would do that to me, that there was still an opportunity for my abuser to go to heaven. There was no way that I would accept any of this ever, ever, until I had a complete change of heart. What I've learned as a pastor is that God saves anybody and everybody he chooses. He doesn't ask for my opinion. He doesn't ask your opinion. We don't get to decide who is worthy and who is not. Do I think child abusers who accept the gospel of Jesus will be in heaven? 
Yes. Do I think that some victims of abuse who've worked hard all their lives to get over it have never been in trouble with the law and give to charity but reject the gospel of Jesus will be in hell? Yes. According to this parable, child abusers, if their faith in Christ is real, receive exactly the same abundant grace from God as their victims do if their victims come to faith in Christ. Do you still want to sing Amazing Grace? It's not easy, is it? The same grace that I receive and that you receive, it's the same grace as the vilest offender. What about the victims of their crimes? Is, is it fair? An abuser can share the same eternal life as those who have served Jesus their whole lives, those who have been martyred for Christ? Yes. And here is the scandal. I think the key phrase in this parable is what the grumblers say to the landowner in verse 12. Where they say, and you have made them equal to us? As I say, there's lots of places where we can rightly um, celebrate grace. And we can go there and, and, and talk about God's amazing grace to us. But I, I, I think if that's our response at first to this parable, we, we miss the point. That is not what this parable is about. This parable is about the fact that the vilest offenders and us, before God, receive the same grace. And the answer to the question of the grumblers is yes. God has made them equal to us. Now, I know for some of our brothers and sisters, this is very hard teaching. This is hard. Many of you, understandably, want to grumble at God and say, you've made them equal to me? And I just would say that that's understandable. But here is the, the major point we really need to understand. If we want God to give everyone what they deserve, if we want God to be fair, then we all would be in hell right now. You see, we think of sin and evil on a scale uh, with us on perhaps a lower end and then God right at the top. As if God is some really good human being uh, who we, if we try really hard, we can, we can get a little bit closer to. God is not on our scale. He's not on a scale. He's completely other. He's off any scale. In the light of his glorious holiness, even the tiniest of sins means we can't even get anywhere near him. We can't work our way to heaven. We're not even close. There isn't a scale with God and us. All of us, every single person in the history of the human race needs God's grace. And we as Christians can thank God that he isn't fair. Rather, he's gracious. And we can easily forget the grace of God given to us and gain a sense of entitlement, especially when we think of people who we see as the vilest offenders. We can feel that we deserve to be in God's kingdom as we serve Jesus there. And then we can get upset when God's generosity is shown to someone else who we look at and think, well, they don't really deserve it, God. We like God's grace when we think about how it's shown to us and to people that we love and like. But not so much when it's to some others. Now, remembering God's grace does not mean we will not sometimes struggle with the scandal of it, but as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, 
we, and, and we see what he has done for us, and his grace in us grows day by day, we will learn not to grumble, but to be thankful. Thankful to God for his grace, and we will learn to imitate his grace. It's not easy, but because God is gracious, he enables us to do that. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says that we are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. Jesus tells us here that we are saved by grace, not by works, so that no one can grumble. Boasting about ourselves and grumbling about how God's grace has been shown to others are two responses that come when we have not grasped the lie, the, 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 the truth that God's Grace is undeserved favor to us all. I think, I think back to when we were looking at Ephesians a couple of months ago, and we were told to pray that we would grasp the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God. And, and, and when we think about that, we think, oh, that's great. We'll always be learning more and more of the love of God. And there is a part of that that's true. But we've also got to grasp that the extent of God's love is so vast, the dimensions are so big, that it can encompass even the vilest of offenders. And it takes time to grasp that. It takes eternity. God is just, and we praise him for it, but we thank him that although he is just, He's not really fair, otherwise we would all be in hell. He's just because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. That's where the justice lies. And so let us as his people, however hard it may be, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, to, to praise to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Well, we're going to pray now, and I think in this time of prayer, in this quiet, I want you to think, is there anyone who you would grumble at God about saying, you have made them equal to us? Are there people that you do not want to be saved? That the thought of being in heaven with them just doesn't bear thinking about for you. I want you to think about that. And with those in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, whilst we know that your grace is amazing and we rightly celebrate it so often, we also recognize tonight that your grace is also a scandal to our way of thinking. There are times when we struggle to think that you would have in heaven those who have caused so much damage and pain in our lives. And we ask that you would help us, help us to see you in your holiness so that we recognize our own sin and our own need of your grace. Help us to see you on your throne as the king who is sovereign over all things and who has the right to have mercy on whomever you will have mercy. Help us not to be envious of your generosity to others. Help us even, Lord, to extend your generosity and grace to others, even those we don't want to. And remind us that we do not deserve your favor. And to thank you for bestowing it upon us. We thank you and we trust you that on the cross, true justice is given. And the sins of even the vilest are paid for in full. And we thank you that that includes ours. Help us to work through these things as we follow Jesus. In his gracious name we pray. Amen.
Well, our final song, um, which we're going to hear, reminds us that whoever we, fu- whoever we are, whatever we've done, we find a place beneath the cross of Jesus. Let's hear these words. Father, we thank you for what we have heard tonight. We pray that you would see all these words upon our hearts. Uh, Help us in our struggles with what we've heard. And we just pray that you would go before us and help us to live for you in the week ahead. Thanking you for your grace. Amen. Thank you.